Now, we are continuing our series on Galatians. We only have two more weeks left in Galatians. Um, Jeff last week did a great job of talking about the freedom that Christ brings to us in chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I love how redundant that verse is. Why did Christ set us free? So that we could be free, you know. And really the word picture I, I imagine is like it's, you're in a jail cell and Jesus comes and he goes, I, I set you free. Unlock the jail cell, you're free to go. And then you get out and you look around and you go right back in the jail cell. You're like, I can't deal with it, you know. And he's going, no, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And Paul, he is hitting, if, if you remember the backstory of Galatians, this is a letter that's written to an area called Galatia where there's multiple churches. Paul, in his missionary journeys, went to Galatia, preached the gospel. People came to know Jesus, and he built churches in Galatia. And then when Paul left, there was a group called the Judaizers who came in after him. He calls them the circumcision party. Uh, which uh, I keep saying every time, it's not my kind of party, um, circumcision party. Um, and they came in and they basically preached to the, the church in Galatia, hey, it is, it is by faith that you're saved, but also you should probably observe the law. And they start adding things to the gospel. And Paul is coming out fully theological, both fists swinging, going, do not mess with the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus plus the law. It's not Jesus plus works. It's, there's nothing that we could do to add to the finished work on the cross. It is done. It is finished. We are not adding to it, and we're not earning salvation. And he says the law, it's a good thing. It teaches us about the character of God, the history of God's people, what, what God is like, what the world is like. It teaches us a ton of things, but it is not salvific by itself. It does not bring salvation. The only thing, there's only one name under heaven and earth in which you could be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. And Paul is hammering that in. He's going, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not shackle yourselves to the religious works that you, you felt like you needed before. Don't shackle yourself to that. You have freedom in Christ. But in the middle of Galatians chapter 5, Paul starts answering the question that starts to stick out to all of us. We go, okay, well, if there's freedom in Christ, if we're saved, it's not by works that we're saved. Does that mean then we just do whatever we want? Does that just mean that there's no boundaries in our life? And Paul, basically, he's saying this. He's going, look, earning salvation, believing that you're earning salvation by the law is enslavement to the law. But at the same time, unrestrained sin by itself is also enslavement. And Paul's going, look, it's two sides of the same coin. Don't leave the freedom that Christ gave you to just go back to your old life. Don't leave the freedom that Christ gave you to go back to the old religious ways of working. Neither of those options are good. And there's a third way, and Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5. But if you've got your, your Bible, turn with me uh, to Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. I'm reading in the ESV version. Um, and this is where Paul starts to make the shift. So starting in verse 13, Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other. Uh, to keep you from doing the things that you do not want to do. So Paul's used this language before, saying, look, if you're following Jesus, the flesh is pushing you into doing things that you do not want to do, which is a sign that the Holy Spirit is in you and giving you conviction about those things. And he's going, look, you've got to walk by the Spirit. And if you create space to walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the flesh. He's not saying that you're going to be perfect. He's not saying you will earn complete salvation and you'll never sin again. He's going, look, if you push into the Spirit, you will start squeezing out the works of the flesh. He said they're contrary to each other. They're against each other. But then he goes into verse uh, 18 and he says this, uh, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Didn't think you'd hear that in church today. And things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I was... Um, I was on Twitter this week, which I don't know why I was on Twitter. Uh, like a dog returns to his vomit, so does Ryan to Twitter. Um, I, uh, so I went, I went on Twitter, um, and there was this video that was going around of a prominent uh, pastor that was preaching. And normally, I do not love to, to stand up here and critique other pastors. I feel like oh, nine times out of ten, it is not helpful at all. Um, but in this instance, I, I, I heard him preaching something that I thought, dang, that is a real sign of the times in terms of where we are as a society. But he, he was preaching about um, gay marriage and homosexuality, and he was preaching about transgenderism. And as he stood in front of his church, he said, look, these things are very nuanced and they're very confusing. And he said, I wish the Bible were more clear on it, but the Bible's not really very clear on it. And I wish it would just like tell us exactly what to do, but it doesn't really do that. And the more he started talking... And I thought, there's got to be a point. Hopefully you pull this around into something, you know. And that was his point. And it started to really grieve me because I was like, that's not true at all. <laughs> that's not true at all. The, the Bible's really clear about those things. Really clear about those things. And as a, as a church leader, as an influencer in the church, or, or whatever it is that God's called you to, it's, it's a big calling and to, to not be clear on the things that the Bible makes very clear is dangerous. And we live in really confusing times, right? Tons of people talking about how nuanced everything is, and I, you know, it's hard to understand. And let me just tell you, Paul lists things very specifically in here. This is, this is post-resurrection list. This is, Paul's going, look, don't shackle yourself to the law, but then he lists out things that he goes, but this is, this is the, the works of the flesh. These are things that if you're feeling confused, here are some very clear guidelines for you. We get into messy territory when we don't bring clarity. And clarity is not condemnation. 
I think in our culture right now, we think that because we say something is wrong, it's condemnation. That's not what it is. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Clarity is not condemnation. Clarity is kindness. Clarity is a kindness of the Lord. And this is what Paul's laying out. The best way I can get a word picture for it is, um, so I have three kids. Uh, Two of them are teenagers. Uh, The other one's knocking on the door of teenage years. And so my wife and I are firmly out of that, like, young kid stage. Um, But I remember back in the young kid stage, like, any any kid that's younger than two, uh, the way that I would say it at that that age is um, all kids under that age are constantly trying to commit suicide. And as a parent, you are trying to stop them from doing that, right? Like there's a knife on the ground. They go right for it. There's like their radar is like goes to the most dangerous thing in the room, rat poison, heights, sharp objects, like anything that they could get their hands on, they're going after. And as a parent, your job is constantly to go, no, 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 don't touch that, don't touch that, you know. You're keeping them alive, you know. And I started thinking about... um, you know, maybe a good word picture for it is like the classic setup would be maybe you're ironing your clothes, you got a hot iron on the ironing board, and your kid is going up to go touch that hot iron. And if you're a good parent, you will go, no, 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 don't touch that. That's really hot, you know. Our culture right now, there's a lot of hot things, and this is what Paul is laying out. These are dangerous things. These are things that can burn you and can really harm you. And culture is going, it's okay. Let the kid touch the iron. It's all right. He's, he's free to do it. Don't judge him. Don't judge the little kid. Let him touch the iron. And then after they touch the iron, they go, oh, it's hot. Then they go, it's your mom and dad's fault. You know, like our culture is just out of control right now. Like there's no clarity in the midst of the, the chaos that we live in. And to me, this is the heart of what, what Paul's saying. This is not fuel for more religiosity. This is not fuel for judging one another and pointing at each other. It's not in the spirit of the law. This is a loving God who is lovingly reminding us that there are things that can hurt us. And when you read it through that lens, it feels a lot less condemning and a lot more caring of the Lord to lay this out for us. So I'm going to go through these one at a time, uh, which fun, you know. Um, but we need, we need to do this. This clarity is really important. So as I was reading through these and I was listening to some sermons, it seems like Paul is laying out these four basic structures or these four basic camps that these sins sit in. And he calls it the works of the flesh, which is interesting because he uses the word works, kind of like he uses with law. Uh, the works of the flesh. And the first grouping, the first grouping of sins that he talks about are the sins of the senses, the sins of the senses. And that'll make sense as we go through it. Number one on that list, very, very top of the list right off the bat, sexual immorality. The word in the Greek is this word porneia, which is this kind of catch-all for any um, sexual uh, gratification or indulgence outside of marriage. So really, again, thinking about this pastor, like this, we can make this very complicated. It's not very complicated. Uh, marriage between a man and a woman, when you get married inside of that, sex is great. It's wonderful. It's a very healthy thing. It's beautiful. Outside of that, it is very harmful and it's not good. So he goes, the, the works of the flesh right off the bat any sexual immorality, any sex outside of the biblical foundation of marriage. Number two, impurity. 
Impurity is kind of this catch-all. Like, if you feel like it didn't fit in sexual immorality and you're like, well, it's kind of a gray area, it would fit into this camp, uh, the, the impurity. It just means uncleanliness or moral filthiness. I like that phrase for it. It just means, again, it, maybe it's not fully sexual immorality, but it's potentially like joking or looking at things that would be immoral. Like, you know, when you, you're in a conversation with somebody and somebody's joking, and it's one thing, like we don't need to be the conversation police, like we don't need any more of that. But occasionally it crosses over into a line where you go, ooh, I feel yucky. <laughs> that kind of general yuckiness, that is what Paul is talking about. He's going, look, don't, don't get into that moral filthiness. I don't think it's just for sexual immorality either. I started thinking, you know, like in business, there can be a moral filthiness. I think about the, the, the dad in Matilda. Have you guys seen that movie? Uh, and the dad's like a used car salesman, and he's like the worst, and he's putting like uh, sawdust in the engine to make it run nice for like a few miles, and then the car like collapses a few miles later. Like that sort of attitude in business, like I don't care how it hurts people, I'm just trying to make money. Again, it's that sort of filthy, that sort of like uh, moral filthiness that you feel around that sort of thing. Number three, sensuality. This, in some ways, it would be con like... Uh, you could say it's a readiness to sin. So it's like it's, you're really quick to sin. But really, sensuality, the word itself, means it's like an idolization of your senses. It is a body-centric, experience-centric value system for your life that you're going, if I feel good, if it makes me look good, if it makes me feel good, then it's okay. doesn't matter what it does to anybody else. If it's about my senses and I feel good about it, then it's good. And this is what our culture is in. That's why we're in such moral fog right now in our culture, because everything's about us and how we feel and what we think. And, and even if it's not true, it doesn't matter. Who are you to judge what people think about the truth, even though it's not true? Like, we're in that sort of slippery, uh, slippery place, so sensuality. The next uh, bucket for the sins to, to sit in would be the religious sins. Uh, the first in that is idolatry. So... At the time, especially, there were idols, and, and if you were, in, you know, in the Greek or Roman world, you would go offer uh, sacrifices to these different idols. It was kind of part of, like, what you did as a citizen, and so we don't really have anything like that so much in our society, um, but he's saying, look, don't go offer things to idols. Don't go offer food to idols. Don't just go along with culture in terms of idolatry. Uh, don't worship other gods. But before we feel like we're in great standing, I think, too, idolatry in so many ways, and you could see it in a biblical sense, the easiest way to wrap your head around it is anything that you put on the throne of your life that is not Jesus. That can be work. That could be comfort. That could be any number of things. Sometimes it's ministry. Sometimes it's a good thing, like ministry, that gets twisted. And I've, I've worked in churches for a long time, and I've met a lot of people that they pride themselves in how much they're doing for the kingdom. And they're doing, 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 and they're not spending time with their family. They're not giving themselves margin. They're not giving themselves time with the Holy Spirit in the morning. They are just worried about making sure they meet every need of every person that they come across. And those kind of people end up crashing and burning 
because it's not a devotion to the Lord. It's really just a way of showing other people that you're pious or that you meet everybody's needs. And this is where something good like that can become idolatry in our lives. Sorcery. <laughs> uh, sorcery. I think we think of like the witch's brew when we hear sorcery, you know, like, oh, you're casting spells. And that, that might be part of it. But uh, sorcery or witchcraft uh, in some translations is the word in, in the Greek. It's the word pharmakia, uh, which is where we get the word pharmacy or pharmaceutical. Uh, I'll just leave that there. That's probably for a different sermon or some, something. Um, but really, ultimately, what it means is this, is it's taking substances to alter your state in a religious way. So um, when my wife and I were in, uh, in Peru, there were a lot of Americans that were coming down to Peru, and they were coming down uh, to meet with religious leaders that would give them these, uh, um, this route that's, that basically makes you um, have a hallucination experience for um, a couple of days, and they'd have a shaman that's there that's like watching you basically hallucinate. And they go, wow, it's so good for my mental health, and it's so good for all these things. And, uh, and then I started seeing that Christians were going, maybe it's okay, maybe I should do that. And again, clar clarity is kindness. Um, it's, it's not good. Not a good idea. This right here tells us, don't take substance substances to have a religious experience and think that you're going to gain something from it. What you're doing is you're opening yourself up to the enemy and to things that, that are very powerful, and it's not wise, it's not good. It is not the fruit of the Spirit. So sorcery. Then the next batch, this is kind of the biggest list of sins, would be the relational sins. These are, these are things that, in terms of our interactions with one another, uh, these are things we want to avoid. Uh, right off the bat, enmity. Uh, basically hatred, violence, just like just a blind hatred toward people. You just have enmity toward them. Like you just don't even, you see them as less than human. Enmity. Strife or contentions in some uh, translations. Uh, the best way to wrap your head around this is it is like combative people who love to fight. <laughs> the proverbial uncle at the Thanksgiving table. And you're going, why are you bringing that up right now, you know? And if you're in that person's shoes, they're going, I just want a good fight, you know? Maybe there's some of you in this room who are like, I like a good argument. Uh, my mom always said I should be a lawyer because I enjoy arguing. I do. Um, so for those of us that, that like, that's, that's actually not good. <laughs> we might go after those first sins and go, oh, my gosh, sexual immorality, all this stuff. But if you are a person that is continuously causing strife to those around you, you need believers in your life to go, hey, maybe you should tone it down. We don't need to argue all the time, you know. We don't need to fight about these things all the time. So that's strife. Jealousy, basically wanting or obsessing over what someone else has. So you see someone, they got a nice house, they just got an addition, they just got a new car, whatever it is, you're like, man, I need that now. Now that I see that, I need to do everything I can to make that happen for me because what they have, I want. Jealousy. Fits of anger. These are like flash in the pan sort of angry moments. These are, you know, you've, maybe you've got kind of thin skin, you're wearing your nerves on the outside just a little bit, and somebody does so just a little something that sets you off, and bam, you're angry. This is not okay. 
this is not okay. When, when I was a, a young dad, I realized, I think I have fits of anger that come across me a lot more often than I'd like to think. And everybody has to work through that and go, okay, well, that is not the fruit of the Spirit. How, what do I do to create some space in my life? Or maybe I need to talk to some people to go, okay, I need to not be so quick to be angry. So fits of anger. Rivalries. This is a, a word in the, the Greek that we talked about actually in the Philippian series. It's translated in Philippians 2 as selfish ambition, which is funny. You wouldn't necessarily think that rivalries and selfish ambition would fit together. Um, but it, again, it's just kind of coloring that word. Um, but basically, it comes from the root of a word that um, means you're just doing something only for money or for personal gain. So the best way for us to wrap our head around it is a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. <laughs> if you show up to church and you go, what's in it for me? You know, you show up to a family dinner and you go, what do I get out of this? I don't know if I really want to do this. You go to a job, you go, what do I get? You know, it's that sort of attitude where you're just looking out for yourself. You're just trying to figure out how does this move me up the ladder? How does this make me more money? How does this give me more status? So uh, where was I at? Rivalries. Dissensions. Pitting people up against each other and dividing each other. We see this all over the place in society right now. Um, and if you're paying attention and if you've got the Holy Spirit in you and you've got discernment as you're looking at the times that we're in, you see the enemy is dividing us like never before. 2019, Ryan, I think if you'd asked me, like, Ryan, is the, is the world really like divided and are Republicans and Democrats divided against each other in 2019, I'd go, oh yeah, it's bad. You know, it's really bad. 2022 Ryan would tell 2019 Ryan, like, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> like, if you thought it was bad, it's about to get a lot worse. And as you look at the culture around us, the warning I felt this, as I was putting together this sermon is, you know, you see, you see the enemy separating us um, all over the place and bringing division everywhere. One of the areas that we need to really watch out is when the enemy brings division over something that we cannot control. So he, the enemy comes in and says, you need to hate this group over something that they can't control. Best, best example I could come up with is race. Black against white. And you feel that. Like you feel that tension. You feel the, like the politics stirring us up against each other. Maybe male against female. It's not just like, hey, we're, we're different and we, we have unique expressions. It's that we need to fight each other for more power. And as Christians, we're hearing this stuff and we're absorbing some of this stuff. And my warning to us is, please don't absorb that. That is not for us. We are not a divisive culture. This should be the place that's the most diverse the most accepting, the most unified, the most like, if you, if you have something that's different than me that you can't control, as a Christian, my job is to continue to say, hey, we have Jesus in common, right? We need to be a people that are unified. And we need to be so wary of the enemy who's trying to bring dissension between people groups right now. We need to be the island that's different than the rest of our culture. We really do. And we do. We have, we have unity in the Spirit. We have unity under the headship of Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And we all get to enjoy unity together. And the enemy hates unity. When we are unified, he loses power. But when we're divided, he starts gaining a foothold. So church, please do not let this seep into 
your walk with Jesus. Dissensions. The next one, divisions. This is a little bit more of like a religious division, a heretical sort of division. Um, One of the things that working in a church for a long time I've experienced is oftentimes there are, are strong leaders that start coming to a church and they start building a group of people around them. And, and at first you go, wow, this is so awesome. They're just such a great leader, you know. And then subtly you start to hear like they, they pull their group aside and they say, oh, well, our church is, our leaders kind of have it right, but I have the real right thing. And have you guys read this book and have you done this, you know? And when they start pulling people off to the side and there starts to become a tension between the main church and the small group, that is a warning sign. That's somebody who is pulling you aside. And oftentimes, it's a sign of something actually heretical, something that is against the gospel, as Paul is very clear, like, don't do that, you know. And our, these are the little wedges that the enemy can put in, in between us, even in a theo- theological setting like this, that can cause division in our church. And he's saying, watch out for religious divisions. Then lastly, in the relational sins, envy. At first, I was like, what's the difference between envy and jealousy, right? You go, I feel like they're the same. Uh, in the Greek, this word envy is not jealousy. It's not wanting what somebody else has. It's just not wanting that person to have it. <laughs> so you might look at somebody who's got a, you know, a mansion, and jealousy would say, man, I want that mansion. Envy says, I want to burn down that mansion because he can't have it. I don't care if I have it, but I don't want them to have it. That is envy. It's happening a lot in our culture right now, too. Societal sins, the public sins, this is the last, uh, the last section. This is the n- number four section in, in what Paul's talking about. The societal or public sins. Drunkenness. Uh, just being impaired by substance, stu- substances. Why can't I say that? This third service, this is hard. Um, substances, being impaired by anything in a big group of people. Like it's not, it's not good, it's not okay. Um, and then that leads into the last one, orgies. Um, so this does have the connotation of what we would classically think with this word. So there's a sexual connotation to it. Um, but it's a little bit broader than just that. Uh, really in some, some translations, it'll say uh, revelry. Uh, In some translations, it'll say, like, wild parties. Um, Really, as I was digging into this word, uh, the best way to wrap your head around it is you're in a situation that lowers yourself and is a nuisance to others. So to me, the quintessential would be, like, the frat party. You know, like, this is is a revelry. Like, this is a, a, a social setting that's not bringing the best out of you or the people around you. So as Paul's laying all these things out, you might feel a little bit like me as I go through this. You go, ouch, yikes, you know. You're really going for it. And Paul really is. I mean, he's trying to make this as clear as possible. And he says, look, the works of the flesh are evident. They're of evident. Like if if you're following the Holy Spirit, you go, oh, that doesn't seem right. He said, but just in case you need a little bit of help, here's a giant list of things for you to avoid. These are giant list of things, not to earn salvation, not to impress people around you, but just so you don't touch that hot iron. He's going, look, this is a hot iron, and it will burn you. This is the stark warning of Paul. But luckily, he doesn't leave us there. And he moves on in verse 22. He says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul makes a change in his language. He doesn't talk about the works of the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Years ago, probably, I think it was probably five or six years ago, um, my wife and I had moved into our current house, and it was in central Phoenix, and so we were like, okay, great. There's a lot of citrus around here. We should plant some citrus. We don't have any in our backyard. And so I went to Costco, and I got a couple of citrus plants and planted them in the ground. They're little, you know. And I planted them in the ground, and I was telling my kids, I'm like, man, next year, guys, we're going to have oranges, and we're going to have lemons, and it's going to be awesome, you know. Year goes by, the, the tree has grown like three-eighths of an inch, and no fruit. I'm going, okay, all right, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong, and I go out and get some, like, you know, feeder for it. I'm putting, like, the citrus food there, you know, and... And the next year comes, and we get a couple of little fruits, but nothing we could really eat, and they're small, and they're green, and they fall off. And, and I thought, what is wrong? Like, what's wrong with these trees? Maybe it's Costco's fault. Maybe, you know, like, whose fault is this? Like, this is, not, this is not working. And then I did what I should have done when I first planted them. I Googled, how long does it take for citrus fruits to bear, trees to bear fruit? And um, it said three to six years. And I went, oh, Okay, you know. And immediately I started having grace on myself and on Costco. Um, I started having grace going, okay, well, this fruit, it just takes a little time, you know. Like, you just have to cultivate it. I love that Paul uses that word for the fruit of the Spirit. It takes a little bit of time. It takes some purposefulness. It takes some things to grow. You know, what does a tree need? Well, it needs good soil. To me, I think that means a good church. You need community. You need people around you. You need good soil to grow in. You need nutrients in that soil. That, to me, is diving into the Word, your prayer time, the, the personal disciplines that you take to grow in the Lord. You need sunlight. To me, that's worship. That's the presence of God. You need those moments where there's the bright presence of the Lord in your life. And then you need water. You need the Holy Spirit to bring growth in your life. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a couple of years and you're like, I don't understand. I don't have any fruit or I got a couple of things and it doesn't seem like enough. Let me tell you, just be patient. It's kind of like Eugene Peterson says, it's, a, you know, following Jesus is just a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And as we read these fruits, there is something about it that really it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can work to create an environment where that starts to grow, but you need the Holy Spirit to really make it grow. And love, he uses the word agape, again, this deep, self-sacrificial, Jesus-like love. Joy, not just joy in the world or just being a happy person, but a deep joy and satisfaction in God himself. Joy. Peace, 
A peace that surpasses all understanding, that doesn't make any sense. A bulletproof peace that doesn't need perfect circumstances or great banking situations, which we're lacking right now. You don't need that if you have the peace of the Lord. It surpasses any of the circumstances going on in the world. Peace. Patience. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I would definitely recommend, he talks about how when he goes to a grocery store, he purposefully picks the longest line in that grocery store, which would kill my wife. She'd be like, oh, you know. But he does that. Why? Because he wants to wait longer? No, because he knows he needs to cultivate patience in his life. What's it going to cost him? An extra three or four minutes, really. You know, you go, it's really not that long, you know. We have to cultivate patience. I think a lot of us, we haven't been cultivating that patience, and you're, you're in a hurry all the time. You're checking your phone constantly. You're, you're always running, always doing something, and then something happens, and your kid spills paint on the floor or on your carpet or something, and you're shocked that you don't have any patience. Well, you haven't been cultivating that fruit. You went to go pick fruit off the patience tree, and there was no fruit on it because you weren't cultivating it, you know? You got to pull that fruit off the tree. You got to be able to have that 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 um, that margin in your life to cultivate patience. Where am I at now? Patience. Oh, kindness. Kindness. It really can be translated as sweetness, which is funny. It's the kindness of the Lord. It's used. It's a Greek word that's used when Jesus is saying, "My yoke is easy and my burden is light." There's a kindness of the Lord doesn't bring irritation or discomfort or too much weight. Kindness. Goodness, which you would think, isn't that the same as kindness? Nope, it's not the same. This goodness is an active goodness. It's a fierce goodness. Like it's the goodness of the Lord that Jesus cleansed the temple. This was him in active goodness. We as Christians are called to active goodness. When we see something wrong, we should say, hey, that's not right. It's the active goodness. We do it with kindness and patience and all of that, but that active goodness in our life. Faithfulness, fidelity, trustworthiness, stability. Faithful to your wife. You're faithful to your kids, faithful to your friends, faithful to your church. There's just this faithful long-sufferingness about you. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Uh, one, one person I read said, this is the most untranslatable word in the New Testament. He said it means so many different things, but he's like, it means gentle, but it also means being submissive to the will of God. And it also means being teachable. And it also means being considerate. There's just so much color to that word, gentleness. And finally, self-control. Overcoming a desire for pleasure and discipline like an athlete. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These are the things that grow when you spend time with the Spirit. And Paul, as he's talking about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, I think it's so beautiful. He bookends this whole section with these two verses. First one is verse 16. He says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 25, he said, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I think what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, look, set your attention on the kingdom of God, not on sin management or sin avoidance. And this is so key for us. 
Do not spend all your effort into sin management. So that means you're sinning and you're trying to hide it. It's like, it's painful. It hurts you. It's, it's a burden that you cannot bear. And don't spend all your time in sin avoidance either. I started thinking about the kid like who, who you know, was going to go touch the hot iron. What if you tell them, hey, no, don't touch that hot iron. And imagine that kid stands there and just stares at the iron and says, don't touch the iron, don't touch the iron, don't touch the iron. At first you might go, oh, that's kind of cute, you know. Let's say two hours later he's still doing that. You'd go, I'm worried. <laughs> like, what's wrong with this kid, you know? I feel like in some ways the Lord's going, look, don't just stare at the iron and go, ah, don't touch it, don't touch it. He goes, you have to understand that there's a swing set outside, that there's a new puppy that I want you to play with. There's so many good things in the kingdom of God with the spirit of God leading us. That is where we should set our attention. And he goes, look, if you set your attention on the spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is he saying? He's saying the more you experience the goodness of God, the less the pull of the world will have on you. It seems so contrary. Like we need to work really hard to stop doing these things. And God's going, look, just spend time with me. Create margin in your life and fill it with Holy Spirit connection. Reading the word, praying, worshiping. It's like what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? And everything else will be added to you. There's a simplicity in the gospel. Paul is saying, look, don't be shackled to the religious spirit, the religiosity that works so hard to look down their nose at other people and say, you're not doing enough right things. I'm doing all the perfect things, thereby committing a sin, which is pride. <laughs> and on the other side, go, well, just then we'll just do whatever we want, right? Everything's fine. And it's like, no, you're missing out on that beautiful middle ground, which is a Holy Spirit-led life. A Holy Spirit-led life. Let's all stand. We have our prayer team up here, and I was thinking this morning, there's a couple of groups of people. One, maybe you heard today, and this feels like nothing but condemnation, and I want to tell you, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nowhere in this list does Paul say, and you have to do all these things perfectly all the time. That's why he says, confess your sins to one another. He says, expect each other to fail a little bit, and that's okay, but just be active in it. Be active in each other's lives and active with the Holy Spirit. But if today you want to confess sin, there's something weighing on you, or maybe you realize you've been operating in a religious spirit, please come forward. Our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray for you. And our prayer team's coming up here in just a minute. And so they'd love to pray with you. The second group of people, maybe you feel really far from the Lord right now. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you knew Jesus in your youth and you're like, I've fallen so far away from the Lord. I want to tell you today is a really good day to come to Jesus. Today is a really good day to fall into the arms of a loving God who's earned everything that you need on the cross for you. And if that's you today, please, if you feel like that burden to come forward for prayer, please come forward for prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're such a loving God. That you're not condemning us or po poking the finger at our chest right now. 
to just lovingly try to pull things out of our hands, going, this is going to burn you. It's going to hurt you. Lord, I pray that we, would, that we would live lives in step with the Spirit, that we'd be seeking you, Holy Spirit, every minute of our life. Lord, that we create margin to hear from you, margin to worship, margin to dive into your word, margin to ask you questions and to listen. And I pray that we wouldn't be a self-righteous church, but a church that carries the righteousness of Christ and the joy of walking in the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, we love you. Amen. Let's worship.